book we read for this episode was Is Breaking Through, John B. McClendon, Basketball Legend and Civil Rights Pioneer by Milton S. Katz. Um, and um, it's copyright in, it says publication date is 2010, but the copyright I think was 2007. So highly recommend it. Uh, it was a great, great read. Apparently the audiobook is not as great. Um, thanks for Thanks for listening, but we should probably just go anyways. Um, what did you think of this? Freaking awesome, right? I loved the story. Uh, the audiobook was miserable. Oh, really? Because of the yeah, narrator? The, the narrator was so boring. Oh, no. But but the, the story shines through. Yeah. I've had I've I've listened to a couple books like that where I'm like, oh my god, why did they get the secretary to read this? This is horrific. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, this is like the closest that we've read to a biography. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, uh, in that sense, it was really like the structure and everything was so easy to follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's just his life. And just chronological, and and it was really like a hagiography sort of like it was just built him up so much. Yeah, that was that was my my uh, like one of my annoying like my annoyances is that it doesn't go through any negatives. Um, like like for someone who's breaking so many boundaries, you think you'd hear like people like other people's thoughts about him that are negative yeah but but this book is just like yeah everyone said he's this amazing guy which i believe but like it can't well, be everyone right i mean the, the personal stuff that he didn't get totally into but the fact that he was married and divorced three times right yeah uh-huh. and i think i mean it's there is a couple places in there where he like talks about how his kids and stuff said well he was married to basketball like mm-hmm. So I, I think that we can kind of infer that, you know, he was obsessed with basketball. Yeah. Um, and and having it be this like vehicle for integration and like a cause, right? Yeah. Um, but I just, it, it was just so good. I didn't really realize we were reading it like on the eve of Black History Month, which. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, it is Black History Month now, so yeah, right. I mean, it's it's apropos, um, but it's also like I, I want to always be mindful of great, you know, excellent people like this. Yeah, it, it's it's really a hidden story that I I think a lot of people should at least be like familiar with more. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, do you have any like notes or thoughts you want to go through? Yeah, let me pull up. Do you want to try sharing them? Uh, I, I my notes aren't super organized this time. Okay. I didn't go chapter by chapter. I kind of just I have my thread on on Twitter. Let so me if I can go to it. Maybe if I even actually I might not be able to go to Twitter on my computer anymore. Uh, how select window no let's see 
No. 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 Okay. So, okay, I'm sharing. Um, yeah, so the story of John McClendon, the father of black basketball and the fast break. I thought it was compelling and engaging, right? It's a um, really a civil rights advocate story. There's a lot of moments in this book that were really compelling, and he made the world better through his actions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, time and time again, he faced through adversity and always handled it in a dignified fashion. I highlighted some of my favorite parts here. Uh, some of my favorite events in the book was the the bus driver story, where where they were talking about like in in when he got confronted by the bus driver and and just got off the bus. Yeah. Uh, the secret Duke game. I thought that was really compelling because we always hear about these blue chip school schools in northern Car uh, North Carolina is like a basketball savant. I, I, I mean, like that that state is obsessed with basketball. There's so many. Yeah. Games historical basketball schools so that secret game made me feel like like this is a, a part of that the north carolina basketball history that's not talking about and yeah and it's in durham like like where duke is made this secret game like super interesting the fact that players they the white players went to the black campus and they 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 were able to experience something like an interracial experience well before that was accepted yeah making laws to make that happen i can't remember where if it's in the um this book or in the review of it or what but they were talking about how like um this they decided to like make make the movie of glory road over this for some reason and I, I don't remember where i was where i read this but it was kind of like reminding me in the book too how they're like oh yeah you can have like a team compete, but you get one team, you know, it's like, yeah. no, there's like so many stories. Like, why can't they all be spotlighted, you know? And, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I definitely like the travel stuff. Yeah. The fact that they couldn't use the same hotels or the same restaurants mm -hmm. or that, like even the, um, how they were talking about how the travel was like campus to campus yeah they, they, they wouldn't stop. stop it's yeah it's fucking crazy uh-huh and disturbing yeah uh a few others uh, i really enjoyed the parts about the a a i the NAIA, the naia yeah he went to tennessee state and how they fought their way to the you know the eligibility, the small campus, and then the second divisions, and then made the powerhouse in Tennessee and won three straight. Yeah, through the the fast break because it's like that's that's proof. It's it's he's a good coach. He's uh, I mean, he's one of the most winningest in college basketball history. Yeah, and, and still to this yeah, day, still. which is crazy in itself, right? Uh -huh. Like we we think of we take fast break. Like I mentioned here, uh, he revolutionized the game not just off the court but on it too. Like fast break is something we take for granted, um, but totally. but it's it was really revolutionary and like I I can't even imagine teams. I mean we have teams that play fast like are more fast break oriented, like the Lakers and our Kings a few years ago, uh, but but everyone plays the fast break to some extent. Yeah, and and the basketball is a moving sport. 
you need to get back on defense and you but but this was the era of stalls before the shot clock like yeah. the, the, the game he was like talking about how he was like this game is memorable because it only scored like 26 points or something yeah. like that. <laughs> I pulled that yeah i pulled that quote because it reminded me of the shot clock mm-hmm. stuff in um in how to watch basketball like a genius yeah he's talking about like it's this miserable experience to watch this basketball game you know and it, uh, and it's just such a contrast to hear yeah they were running fast break like 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 full spread offenses in the era of stall yeah yeah like, like that truly revolutionary and um yeah other other moments uh, the the denver rockets I think the AB it's it's fun to read these books and see them interlink with another like like totally. you mentioned the the shot clock and then the ABA comes back again like it seems like all the ABA owners are just the worst people yeah but <laughs> <laughs> they're always portrayed like that but <laughs> but it that was one of my like it was frustrating like. It's understandable, but it's frustrating that the story isn't known precisely because, like, he he broke through historic barriers, and it's a shame because he's not well known because he didn't break through enough barriers. Right? Yeah, he didn't yeah. play any blue chip schools. He didn't coach professional. He, but I mean, he was an Olympic coach. He was a historic uh, HBC coach, and he broke so many like color barriers. So many. Yeah, it, it's frustrating that that his story isn't more well known because it's just so compelling and phenomenal i agree i and you know there was so much history within the book that they didn't explore fully too like yeah the the cleveland pipers chapter i thought i was like what in the what like an industrial league it's weird i actually did look it up the pipers they did switch leagues because they were first an amateur in everyone who was on the pipers worked somewhere else yeah so i and that to me i was like i kept thinking like oh these are the actual firemen and plumbers yeah there it wasn't that you were playing against the firemen and plumbers the firemen and the plumbers were sponsoring the teams (laughs) and that's who you were playing right and then that became like the feeder leagues for a lot of the ABA stuff, right? Yeah. Because it was like confusing in Loose Balls reading like, oh yeah, they found this guy playing. He's like, well, what what do you mean he was playing? Like, and this for me, like gelled that concept of like, there were all these other like smaller leagues that were happening sort of, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, but that got kind of like combined into the bigger leagues, especially because like also the ABA taking unlimited numbers of black players in at a time when the NBA was still having like limited roster spots for. Well, that was a team by team basis, right? It was depending on. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And the seventies, it was probably mostly, um, you know, theoretically over by then, but I think there was still some like concern about like box office and stuff. If you didn't have, yeah a no. white star or two you know kind of thing yeah and and it's it's wild the they uh the they they went to professional for a singular year 
the the American Basketball League. Yeah. Where they introduced the three point. Right. That part was I I thought like I mean they didn't tell a lot of that story but the Abe Saperstein stuff. Yeah. You kind of want to do a deep dive on the Globetrotters. Mm-hmm. Um and like what kind of an impact he had on you know these like sort of nation younger leagues. Um but yeah, just interesting side note for sure of like how modern basketball became modern basketball, right? Yeah. And then the, this is about the audiobook. I think this I didn't like the way the story was written. Uh, I think it was really repetitive. Like I, mm. I don't I don't need to hear everyone saying he's a great person. Like, right. Hundred oh, yeah. times, right? Uh, and the the performance performance wasn't great, but yeah, th- those were my those were that was the Twitter thread I had. Awesome. How do you stop sharing? I don't know. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean I picked out a lot of the same stuff. Sorry, I'm tabbed out for a second. Oops. I messed up. Let's see here. Oh, this is all the chapters. I I, you know, so I mean one of the things that struck me too is like they give him all this credit for being like the first black man to do all of these things, but he was actually white, black. And Native American. Yeah. And they never mention the, like, I get not mentioning the white part, but the Native American part, like, he must have been the first Native American to do many a lot of this, too. Yeah. So anyways, I thought that was kind of a weird, like, you know, that, that just kind of gets left off, but it's, I guess it's like the, you know, white dad, black mom, black baby scenario. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um so anyways, and I, I found this stuff about the Rattlebone Hollow and like Hiawatha, Kansas. Like I could probably read like a whole book on that history of like that area and and that migration of the Native Americans and stuff like that. I'm super into that kind of stuff. But um, for the purposes of this, I mean, it was just interesting, you know, how he came to be in that area. And then how intentional um, his upbringing was, like his father, like telling his kids, like, you have to fight this. You know, he obviously went into all of these things with the knowledge that he could use this sport to help change society, which is incredible. I don't know that I would like, I mean, it seems obvious if you're living as a second class citizen that that would be a goal, but for some reason the intentionality of it struck me as being very like poignant mm-hmm. um the university of kansas and so the you know the portrayal of, doc- of dr naismith was obviously very uh, positive as well yeah um i think the swimming incident at kansas was one, yeah. one that like stood out to me and then that they engaged in like a like where they were paying in student dues, but they weren't allowed to go to any of the dances or anything. Yeah. So they actually went to the dances and, and, um, and pushed, you know, those kind of uh, boundaries. 
And then the college project he did that proved that there was no differences um, physiologically between races that would like prevent them from competing against each other. I yeah. thought that was like a really interesting, you know, groundwork, seminal project for this kind of idea that everyone can compete against everyone else. Um, and then the weird, like, the muscular Christianity thing. That was so weird. <laughs> it was really creepy in a way. Like, but like I, I get it, but the 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 way they phrased it was like, wow. Yeah, it's very interesting. But I also see, like, I mean, it it go it runs all the way through the whole book, right? He's like becomes this sort of like father figure coach to the players and mm -hmm. expects them to stay off the weed and the wine and the women. And, um, and it makes sense in a lot of ways that this is also going to be kind of a savior for them um, as far as like helping them to live a clean life. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but it was a weird, I, I didn't know anything about that. I'd never heard anything about that. But then tied into the YMCA roots of basketball, it does make sense that there's this philosophy that goes along with it as well. Yeah. That thought was really interesting. And then, I mean, these are just timeline kind of, these are just the chapters, um, which like we kind of talked about to a certain extent. And then in the very, uh, the prologue, I think, it has this list and it's John was the first black man to graduate with a degree in physical education from the university of Kansas when three straight national association of intercollegiate NAIA national championships integrate Kansas city hotels and restaurants during the tip off coach the Cleveland Pipers to an amateur. And then like you said, they also turned pro um, coach a U.S. All-Star team overseas, coach a now professional team, uh, Cleveland Pipers in the American Basketball League. So I thought that was interesting that the, it was like amateur and then professional. Yeah. Um, coach at the predominantly white Cleveland State University, coach and win a major international competition, coach on the Olympic basketball staff, write and publish uh, a book on fast break basketball. Which I looked, I couldn't find the book though. It's out of print and it's like a yeah. hundred bucks or something. But I, I'll look whenever I go to the thrift store and if I ever find it. Mm -hmm. uh, be inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. It was a pretty impressive list. And I feel like there's some stuff that got left off there as well. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, just like McClendon's father, who called John the wizard and Arthur the law piece, urged his children to fight discrimination wherever they could and be on the right side of the battle. Um, so they had wanted like their kids to be like a doctor, a lawyer. Um, and I can't remember what they wanted him to be, but he was like, just fell madly in love with basketball. Yeah. And that was sort of it. Um but he may have been, you know, the most effective at changing, actively changing uh, society around him. Um, and then at the nexus of muscular Christianity and college education stood the Young Men's Christian Association. Indeed, it was in 1891 while working as a gym teacher 
blah, blah, blah. We know that he was, you know, invented it at the YMCA. Um, but the, the muscular Christianity and this like healthy activity and is, is an interesting through line in that they're trying to like basically keep, keep people out of trouble. Uh, you know, when there's no other sports going on. Yeah. And then Naismith believed that you ele- when you elected to be a coach, it was also your responsibility to be advisor, counselor, and father figure, and to act at all times like as an example to the athletes in your care. Um, so I think, you know, McClendon definitely also did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the while serving on the student council, McClendon decided to challenge other discriminatory discriminatory practices at the university. For example, although black students paid extracurricular fees to the university, like everyone else, they were denied equal access to facilities and events in the student union, particularly the annual spring dance. McClendon and his girlfriend, Alice, decided they would go to the dance anyway. I thought that was a great, um, that was just, it was such a great anecdote because it's, it's so, the fact that they were paying these fees should have made these things accessible to them, and they like did. Even, even under separate but equal, that's that's not equal. They're yeah, driving them rights. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, the swimming anecdote is really—I don't think I have anything about the swimming in here, but it's a similar kind of idea: is that like paying tuition, paying student fees to use the pool, and then. You know, they're like emptying the pool every time he goes and Yeah, that was wild. Really uh, you know, I you know, I it's like I know all this stuff, but then you read it again and yeah, it, it again and it's ridic- it's crazy. It's it, it gets to you every time. Yeah, exactly. Um and then just like so Naismith deeply impressed. So McClendon was tiny, right? He was like super small, but he was very fast, which is what like sort of you know set the stage for this fast break kind of concept. Um, and Naismith deep, deeply impressed with McClendon's maiden coaching experience, told his young protege, "Whatever you do, continue your interest in basketball. I feel you have a good understanding of the game, Johnny. You're on your way. Basketball is your calling." Um, I learned my philosophy of coaching from those sessions, recalled McClendon. He told me never to put X's and O's on a chalkboard. It was more important to instill positive thinking and goal orientation, to let your players know their long and short range objectives, and to build your program step by step. So I thought it's interesting because they do talk when, I mean, they talk in a limited way about actual basketball in here, Yeah. Um, which is you know, a lot of what my main interest in reading it was. Uh, but they do talk a lot about how he basically taught like emotion offense, like that they had plays, but they didn't, you know, there was no like set plays that they were going to run. He trusted his players to run them on the floor, which yeah. I thought was really interesting. And that he's built around like the set special skills of his players um they mentioned they had uh the two-point like offense right so so they throw two guys into a corner and yeah and then try to make motion through uh, like uh, space it out so they can get to the basket easier 
Yeah, there's some other, there's an archive that Dean Smith ran to that he stole from John um, McClendon. That's called, yeah. it's called the four point. Yeah, the four three, point. Three point line and stuff. So it's not, yeah. it's not modern, but you know, it's a similar kind of this, this concept of like, at one point he says like, one of his rules is that the entire team had to be over the half, the half court line within four seconds. Mm-hmm from one side of the court to the other, which is pretty freaking fast considering there was no, you know, shot clock for a lot of this time. Mm. Uh, so that, that was really interesting to me. Um, so, and then this, for instance, stated McClendon, this was about the college project that he did uh, where he showed that physically whites and blacks were the same basically. For instance, stated McClendon, they used to say that blacks have a longer heel bone and mm-hmm. the femur was a different shape and it caused them to have more jumping ability. We found out that wasn't so. In fact, McClendon's part of the study concluded that no measurable physiological differences exist across racial lines. Um, Coach McClendon brought a new seriousness to black college basketball. His tenure at North Carolina College revolutionized the sport commencing its trajectory upward to the elevated status it enjoys today. Um, his philosophy was simple and direct. As a coach, he would work harder than his players would, and his players would work harder than all their opponents. Uh, he developed rope-grinded conditioning drills, complex plays, and a wide-ranging strategic philosophy. He was acutely aware early on in his career that a number of coaches and athletic directors had voiced the opinion that his undisciplined playground street style basketball had no place on a college collegiate basketball floor. This was just not how the game was supposed to be played. And yet they won over and over and over again on so much. And it sounds like, I don't think I pulled anything about this either, but it sounds like it was so fun to watch. Like, that people were just absolutely loving going to these games and like watching the, how fast the action was. And, um, you mentioned you know, and, uh, um, both the NC state and the, the, the Texas A and I drew crowds really well. Yeah. Yeah. There was uh, the, the part about how, how they had the, the white only seating because they wanted white people also to start watching the game. Yes. Integrated it oh, eventually I, I too. Yeah, that was great. That was fascinating. Uh, so when I mean, I you know, part of it is like, I think there's this whole, I wish I knew more black people or I talked to more black people. I don't really talk to any people. So yeah, I can write. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think there's this whole kind of like philosophy of like black excellence that sort of in some ways like went out of style in the 60s. Like he talks about how the civil rights movement changes so much in the 1960s because like like McClendon's like polite and he's gonna act perfectly all the time. And he's gonna make sure his guys act perfectly all the time. And he's like achieving this massive bar of like excellence to change things. And it did change things. But I think that the pushback on that is a lot of times like, why the fuck do we have to be so much better than everybody else? Yeah, You know what I mean? That's bullshit. And it is bullshit. Um, but I don't think you can argue that 
that the excellence the and the innovation were a part of the success here right yeah. so and and the emphasis on conditioning um that's yeah for me um, I think I think that's probably one thing where, you know, you you think teams would try to get every edge, yeah, you know, especially in the NBA, but they they really don't in regards to conditioning. There's a lot of teams where they they're not they're not coached, yeah, um, and and the conditioning isn't really an emphasis. And I can only really think of a few teams where conditioning is even a part of their um, game. Obviously, Miami. This is the one right. that comes to mind. Yeah. There's, like, they're historically known for their conditioning. but I mean, I think in the Blood in the Garden that we just read, that's what they were talking about, right? Is that yeah. is, this was, this was, I mean, this is essentially the same. This is, this is heat culture. This is um, Pat's, Pat Riley's entire culture right yeah. here is this kind of idea that, you can build people up into a team that's greater than its parts, right? Um, mm-hmm. Through conditioning and hard work. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of things that were in here that have been, have been carried on, right? That have been taken and used and carried on, um, including the past break, obviously. Um you know, in the read and react uh, basketball. And like you said, I do think that there are teams that still rely on, on outworking other teams for sure. Uh, I have in the next, I have another set of slides. I probably did way too much. Um, but he talks specifically about the conditioning. So contrary to its reputation, I explained in the book's introduction, this is his book that he wrote it's fat, the fast break basketball, fine something in fundamentals or something like that. Uh, so he explained in the book's introduction, the fast break is not an aimless, helter skelter, run and shoot, fire horse, get, fire horse game, except in the appearance of its rapid, often demoralizing action. It is a planned attack with multiple applications. It is a designed offense which can be utilized in one or more of its several phases each time a team gains possession of the ball. McClendon argued that the breakaway from the stereotyped game of set offense first and fast break when you can to fast break first and set offense when you have to has added a new dimension to the game which multiplies the coach's repertoire of scoring possibilities and equally important allows the use of limited ability personnel in important team play positions, a great morale factor. That was just such an incredible, um, you know, quote there about everything like that. It can elevate limited ability, ability personnel. And then this is absolutely the modern game, right? Set offense, uh, fast break first and set offense when you have to. I mean, that it reminds is... me of that Kings year with uh, uh, what was the coach? Uh... Dave. Yeah, Dave. Dave uh-huh. Yeah. Where where the whole game was just about trying to get fast break as much as possible. Um, I loved that. <laughs> and and yeah, it's it's 
at the time and even still today a lot of people think fast break is just you know is just physical ability but it doesn't it not isn't necessarily the case like there's there's thought and intentionality into it yeah and i think for me like part of what this clarified for me this book actually clarified for me is that the press defense is such a fundamental part of the fast break right yeah is you're trying to turn them over you're pressuring them so that they cannot get across court so that they cannot fast break like and for some reason i don't know why that hadn't clicked as much with me probably partially because that dave yeager team did not play very good defense yeah um but for him that the defense was such a monumental part of of the entire thing yeah um and it, it was they always played full court you know full court press um so then mcclendon outlined 15 reasons why the fast break game could consistently put any team with even mediocre ability into the scoring column i think one of the things that's so appealing about it too is this kind of idea that underdogs can win right so i i there is there is a a thing to that of in the era that was absolutely true yeah Uh, but like you like it does I, I think the part of using limited ability players is definitely important because you kind of have to ha- go platoon like full out change rosters because yeah. it, it's so intensive and physical that that you just need bodies yeah um and that's that was one of the things that stood out to me with with the Dave Yeager team um but but I think some of these points don't stand when everyone's doing it right right some of these only stand because the other team isn't fast breaking well and i think some of it like i he talks he has one section where he talks about how like you were talking about the platooning where he had like the mighty mites who were like small and would just run the brakes off the other team but then he would put in like the huge guys <laughs> and like yeah. so it would like be this really weird like set of of bad matchups on either side you know which mm-hmm. i think to a certain extent i mean coaches do that today too is, is try and exploit the matchups but it's way more individual than trying to swap out like an entire team you know i think nowadays the the especially because i mean the small ball revolutionized I mean, the small ball was basically an attempt to get the best players on the court, right? And and yeah. if your best players are small, then you play small ball. Um, right. I, I think nowadays there's an emphasis on trying to make sure your best talent is just on the court as much as possible. Yeah. And and a lot of the platooning and stuff has gone away because of that. Like I like we, we won't be the, the small ball wasn't because of of the small ball. Right, uh, and it, so this this clamping and and this whatever the the hand, 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 I don't remember the 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 two yeah. teams would never fly now. Oh yeah, the yes, right. I can't remember what the other might the mighty mites and there was another team that was. Yeah, no, and I so okay in space. I think out, it was clam, clampers something something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um. In Spaced Out, he has a whole section where he talks about small ball and what what is small ball. 
and he says it's like a misnomer because it's not that you your entire team is smaller than the other team. It's just because Draymond was playing center and happened to be smaller than the other team's center, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's not, in fact, like the Warriors lineup in 2015, when it became like so popular to talk about small ball and stuff and how great it was and the death lineup and all the stuff, it was actually on the average, bigger than the other positions that they were mashed up against, except for So, I mean, you know, I mean, just to to put that in there as like a footnote is, is some of these kind of like, you know, things that we use to like categorize basketball are like grouped think, you know, out to the nth degree and like they become, take on different meanings than what they actually are. So, uh, okay, so I don't know if I need to go through and read all of these. Um, so I'm just gloss through them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's successfully employed players who have limited all-around talent, one or two special abilities, offsets the lack of sufficiently trained defensive personnel. Well, that's interesting. Um, it can break an opposing team physically and decrease their advantage of skill and size. So you're doing that by using speed, right? Yeah. Um, it is best answer to opponents who force your team to run because you're going to run. It creates the need for excellent conditioning and health practices that ensure this status. Uh, it serves as, as a detector of physical unreadiness and physical limitation. It inspires teamwork basketball. Um, it's the um, it's so windy outside. My dogs are freaking out. You can hear yours is too. Yeah. Um, it's the best game for consistent performance since it utilizes the close shooting attack in the optimum scoring area. It's an exciting inter- I mean, that's probably outdated, right? Because there's the three-point line now. Um, it, it's an exciting, entertaining game to the player, coach, and spectator. It's the most versatile offense. It complements more defenses than any other offense. It's been used most successfully by many teams in all areas of competition. Is a winner by record. So I thought those were pretty interesting. Oh, and then it allows for ease of team organization. It's a high-pressure offense designed to disorganize opposing team defense and limit opposing team offense. It is basic to continued preparedness for international competition. And then here's the condition. So superior conditioning, McClendon Road achieved through cross-country running, which precedes the season's opening by three to four weeks is a must. Some games we plan to beat teams with better players by running them into errors and misjudgments solely caused by fast break induced fatigue. Our team cannot admit fatigue as a factor in their own performance. It is non-existent as long as the desire to excel is uppermost in the player's mind. There's one thing that like for this year's Kings team, I don't, I feel like they are not as well conditioned as they were last year. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I just remember hearing about how hardcore the practices were last year and then that Malik and De'Aaron have had so much trouble 
turning the ball over yeah. um, in late game situations. And I, I wonder, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the scramble defense that, that we're running. Is that, that we're really aggressive at moving and closed like and closing out um we move on our defense more than basically any other team yes i don't think it's our conditioning thing i think it's our defensive scheme wears us out so i when you're saying that are you are you saying that we're switching too much or are you just saying we that- switch a lot I think we switched too much too. <laughs> it drives me crazy sometimes. I'm like, why the, f- why are you not staying home? Like, and I do understand they have this hot guy thing where they're like trying to identify who they can leave on the on the uh, perimeter and stuff like that. But sometimes it's a little frustrating to watch for sure. It does work really well at times. I mean, our defense has improved. Yeah. But but we we've lost all we've lost our legs. Um, yeah, it's fallen apart the past few the fa- past few games outside of Denver. It seems. <laughs> and... Yeah, yeah. No, I mean I was really happy with this last game. I think it was super ugly. Like, I, I love the gritty ugly losses that wins. I mean, it's just like yeah, for me, like that's been what's missing this season is like yeah. they haven't had that like band aid moment where they like realize like we're going to have to be, you know, we're going to have to beat them. We're going to have to beat the refs. Like it's us against everybody. And we're going to have to be faster, stronger, better, you know? And like, for whatever reason that, that they haven't, uh, but also I think there's a lot of room for growth. Like I'm not writing them off either. Like, I feel like a lot of people are like, Oh my God, they didn't do anything. Like it's, there's a lot of individual growth. But but I, I felt the the team isn't putting enough effort. Um, it felt like a lot of losses are, are because the guys weren't locked in, like you know, like yeah, the, they're focused. I can see sometimes when they're not focused. I can see when they yeah. lose focus sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I have seen moments, and they're they've been few and far between where everything's working, and it's like holy shit! If you could yeah. do that for longer. Yeah, just just like play a, a complete forty-eight, right? Yeah, or the last three quarters of a game, like have a shit first quarter, cool. But then if you could like pull it, bring it around. So, anyways, we'll see. Yeah, uh, I don't. The the rest of the 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 league has gotten better, um, and I think people's expectations need to acknowledge that. I also think that they have adapted to what the Kings were doing last year really well. Like, I think it's more, a lot of teams are also doing motion offense. Yes. It's less yeah. about, it's less about adapting and more it's just gotten more, I guess it is adapting, but, but they've gotten a lot more familiar with it. Not necessarily com- combating us. It's just, it's more common in the league. So but they, which they is also, them. I guess like part of my optimism and I may sound like a total idiot and, next month when they're out of the playoffs or whatever but um like domas has been so fucking good like and to me i i feel like he has been facing a lot more double teams a lot more people trying to disrupt his um the dho you know a lot more pressure on him specifically yeah and i feel like he's just kind of found another gear and if 
De'Aaron can like return to his super, you know, power form. I feel like um, they can have a really good. It, it has been weird that like right when like Kevin Herter was swamping earlier this year, and then right when Kevin Herter gets it back, like come like you know his shot isn't ice cold and he he's playing decent defense. Is that other guys like Fox start falling off and like Keegan's been a little cold lately. Like, like we, we haven't had a, a few games where the whole team is, is locked in. I, I mean, I, I don't, since I'm not on Twitter, like it's really weird, but I don't, I don't have the same, I'm not in the same conversations that I think tend to be group thinky. And I know but I do watch, like I, I'll watch James Ham and Kyle Madsen occasionally. Yeah. Uh, I watch. Uh, oh boy, and I watch, um, uh, you know, D'Lo and Casey and stuff. Um, but I. I mean, there's been a lot of negativity this year. I think it's it's been frustrating just because, like, you know, we get one good year, and now they expect everything in the world. Yeah. Yeah, it's been frustrating to me. Uh, I think that's that's it's most. I think most of the like Twitter, Reddit has just been negativity. So I don't think you're missing much. <laughs> well, there. I mean, I'm on Threads, so there there's some there as well. But but I, there's also a lot of positivity there. So um, I don't know. I mean, I you know I have hope still. I guess is is the long and the short of it. I. I see some beauty in the things they're doing. And sometimes I'm really surprised at especially what James Ham and Kyle talk about. And I'm like, why are you guys talking about Trey Lyles? Like he's a problem. Like he's fucking awesome. He's been great. He the great. Uh, One of the, the most frustrating discussion this year has been the like, I, I do not understand why they were, everyone was so obsessed with the, the post game, like press box stuff. I don't know if you, you were locked yeah, there were there there was a stretch of the season, like four or five games, where where Fox and Sabonis wouldn't go up to the. the oh yeah. And that well, that's just, I feel like I th- I feel like our media just stirs shit up sometimes. Well, and what's weird is okay, so that that was one thing I was gonna say. So so I go and I'll, I'll go and I'll watch the post game just on YouTube sometimes, right? Yeah. And and in the um. The Denver, not the last Denver win, but the Denver win like four games ago. Yeah. De'Aaron was in his post game and he said, um, and he had like 15 points that game, right? But he had like a shit ton of deflections. Like he had like six steals or something. And he kept saying in that post game, um, well, I'm just trying to figure out how to impact the game when I'm not scoring. And I kept thinking, well, why aren't you scoring? Like, because you're trying to get other guys off. And the only thing I could come to, and then in the the games that were came right after that, both of those games, he got nailed in the shoulder, like really hard. I think it's his right shoulder. Yeah. I, I could see him like wince. And I was like, he can't shoot. That's what it is. So that's my theory. But I totally understand why they would not say that out loud. Um, you know, if even if he's like working through that, because why would you give an opposing team that weapon to use, right? 
So anyways, that's my theory. And I think it's feeling better that I think that's why he had such a great game. Um, this last Denver game, like yeah. I felt like he was back, you know, and even yeah. in the Phoenix game, I was like, okay, this is Darren. Like I get it. It's, it's coming back. So anyways, that's all theoretical. Yeah. Yeah. Bullshit. About the Kings. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get back. Let's get back to the book. Uh, okay. So I think I didn't read this. So he aimed to blend an aggressive defense, defensive press with a high speed offense that utilized specific lines of attack. Furthermore, he stressed what seemed at the time a revolutionary idea, filling three lanes. This was like, please do this more, all NBA teams. I think our kings are very good at filling the lane. That's that's one of our strengths. It drives me crazy when they shoot transition threes and nobody is in position to crash for the rebound. Like you only have to be close enough to crash the top of the key, right? Because that's mm-hmm. where long rebounds go majoritively. Like, yeah. And it drives me. Make in. sure everyone fills the lane, though. Like, yeah. 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 Uh, so, anyways, filling three lanes on a break to secure the manpower advantage to the front court. Okay. Um, are these black college teams performed on a shoestring budget along with the hindrance and danger of segregation? Every athletic trip was viewed as campus to campus, particularly throughout the Deep South where a routine stop at a gas station could lead to a racial confrontation and serious trouble. So I, we've already talked about that too, but I, it was just really telling like how many times even like they would go to tournaments and basically like have to drop out because they had no money, yeah. you know, or how these kids were like at these colleges, but they were not, uh, physical education was not a major, so you couldn't get a scholarship to be there. And you definitely didn't get like an athletic scholarship if you were a basketball player. Um, so that was like another thing that I view him as having innovated where like physical education was looked on as a major and where they where a lot of these uh, schools could start bringing in students and offering them scholarships to participate in these programs. I think you could probably go further and argue, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, all that kind of stuff. But um, opportunity is opportunity. And I mean, it's some of these kids were so just deep dirt poor, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, and I think like the other, the other thing, in Pete Carrell's book, he talks a lot about what a pain in the ass recruiting is and, like, how much it sucks after spend your time, um, you know, trying to get guys to come and play and, like, making weird promises and, like, figuring out how to navigate all the rules about it and stuff like that. And yeah. I thought that was an interesting part of this is where they kind of talk about how, like, the Black community knew who he was and all the different coaches had like a network where they would like, where they would like refer players to each other um, to the point where even he would like refer black players into white programs when they were trying to integrate, he would like identify players that could really fit into their programs um, to start making that change. So I thought that was really interesting too. 
So ob obtaining racial respect and overcoming the obstacles of Jim Crow society became the guiding principles of the young coach's life. And he created opportunities to put these principles into action. Um, this is a secret game team. Led to the first, this was a different integrated game. Led to the first integrated game in our nation's capital. Underscore the significance. McClendon invited Eleanor Roosevelt, hoping to prove the administration's support his efforts. Sympathetic, but in, unable to attend, she sent Interior Secretary Her Harold Ix, a strong civil rights supporter, as her personal representative. And the secret game stuff is is just really cool. Yeah, I think um, that was just an incredible chapter to read. I mean, and it, I, I appreciated like how scary it must have been for them. Yeah, like, they could have been arrested, like they could have been thrown in jail for doing that, you know, and that they had the white team travel to them, and um, they just, I mean. You hear, I, I've read about the secret game before, but I don't think I totally understood like the magnitude of how dangerous it was for them to do that. Um, you know, and how, and how it talks about how quiet all the participants were about it until like 40 years later, like mm -hmm. they still felt like they couldn't talk about it, you know, even though it probably would have, you know, made a big difference in promoting integration to talk about them winning it yeah well well in the the integration the integrated game too like yeah like that was probably maybe more monumental at the time right right well and that the the one at the capitol was public i think obviously the college um tournaments that they were allowed to participate in were absolutely monumental especially when they did so well in them you know yeah, yeah uh see basketball is a game not a battle or a fight basketball is for the fun and enjoyment it produces not to provoke bitterness and sorrow a basketball game is not a matter of life and death basketball is a game from which there must emerge a victor and a loser in general only a few points separate the two the victors deserve congratulations. The losers respect. Victories should develop a spirit of tempered elation mixed with tolerance. I just love that because it's, I feel like so much of our narrative these days is like, he's great. He sucks. He's great. He's, you know what I mean? And it's like, yeah. it's way more nuanced than that. First of all. And second of all, like, that's just a terrible conversation. Like, um, and I mean, even, the guys that make it to the NBA at all, like, I don't care who they are, if they fall off rosters, if they get waived and never picked up, they made it there. Like, that's an incredible amount of perseverance and work. Yeah. And, uh, I, I always just think about how, how when even, even washed up players can go to like the CBA and absolutely destroy. Totally. Yeah. Like, there's, there's a level of creativity, talent, Etc. You need to make them to the league. That that is exponentially incredible, even for like uh, like even in comparison to other professional leagues. Totally. So so e even the the worst player in on an NBA roster would be like a top ten. Well, not necessarily. It depends on the league, but like in comparison to the CBA, for example. 
Like definitely any any NBA player will be the best player on our CBA team. Yeah, yeah. Or I mean, look at Stefan Marbury or some, you know, with like um, Jimmer Fredette. <laughs> like yeah, who, you know, just goes and like dominates like Chinese basketball. Like I mean, it's yeah. I I um, I'm out on the like making fun of guys or like I don't know dunk. I, I I'm out on dunk culture. I guess. I, I think I, I'm tired of of NBA fans who don't enjoy basketball. Like, yeah, <laughs> I don't get it. Like, if I you're really can't enjoy it, gambling has made it a lot worse too. Like, I feel like people talk about basketball as if it's like a bet sometimes, yeah, yeah. and it's like, dude, you're talking about statistics and box scores and shit. Which, yeah, I mean, they should hopefully be a tool to help you figure out what's happening on the court but that is like the least engaging part of a game in my opinion you know yeah i mean it's there's so many aspects to winning yeah and and fixating on any any individual stat is doing that a disservice um and it's a whole team there's five guys out there so yeah i it's i I like that they talk a lot in here about, you know, how to build that team dynamic up uh-huh. and how it becomes a, a, a different, it's not about one guy or, you know, it's about how the team can work together to attain this goal of a win. Um, anyways. Yeah. So although Charles Cooper of Duke, I don't know how to say that Duquesne University was the first black player to be drafted by an NBA team, the Boston Celtics, on April 25, 1950. All-star guard Harold Hunter of John McClendon's North Carolina College team became the first black player to sign an NBA contract with the Washington Capitals. So I actually pulled this because I think it's interesting. You know, congrats to Harold Hunter. Um, but I thought the story about him being involved with those two the two recruits when they were yeah. trying out was really like the they, they went they pulled off to a basketball court to to practice yeah right before the trials because in their their coach they never did what like one on one defenses it was always yeah uh, something like that, that. Was really sweet and that the, 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 they traveled together and that he um you know he he advocated for them yeah. I thought was great. Um, I mean, sadly, they didn't get paid. What the white players got paid, etc. But it was a step, right? Yeah. No. No. Nothing. Nothing. No equality happens immediately. The enemy of gray is good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it goes into like the 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 black the college the whole college thing was complicated. Like I since I don't even know what the current um you know, like conferences and stuff are, it was a little hard for me to follow all of it, but, and especially since a lot of it was like NIAEA or the, it, the blah, blah, and I'm like, holy crap, what is all this stuff? But, um, you know, I think the integration, the gradual integration was really interesting. And then to me, it also made it seem like, wow, this is, it's such close history. Like the fact that I think today at the at the All Star, they were actually talking about one of his students is still a coach on one of the rosters in the in the NBA. 
Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's only like two guys removed from the inventor of basketball. Like that's freaking crazy. And it's, you know, it's, it's a really cool and incredible. Um, so McClendon's committee submitted a request, the color colleges of the U.S. be integrated into the national basketball program in such a way that there would be an opportunity to take part in the NCAA playoffs and tournament. Uh, within weeks, 36 black colleges had officially joined the organization. As a result, both the nature and the tempo of college basketball would be changed forever. So um, Kane and Davis put their considerable energies into recruiting superb athletes. Oh, this was about... Um, his like second stint as a college coach, I think, um, where he finally had was like getting actual like good players and yeah, yeah, the the Tennessee A and I they yeah. wanted to make uh, like a superpower like school. yeah yeah, and then Naismith taught me that if you're going to make uh, some rules, you have to make them apply to your best player, or they're not worth anything. He stated mm-hmm. our player would have to accept the consequences for his actions. So I pulled that because that is something that we've heard over and over again. Um, with uh, you hear it when people talk about pop all the time, and then also uh, people, you know, I think it's been. Um, I don't know if Mike Brown has said it explicitly, but I know that like I've heard it a bunch in the post games is that he's harder on Domas and De'Aaron than anybody else on the team, right? Yeah. Um, another lesson McClendon le- had learned from Dr. Naismith is that, let's see, that applied to Barnett was to support individuality as long as it wasn't a detriment to the team. Barnett was famous for his unorthodox trademark jump shots in which he tucked his legs under his body, looked at the hapless defender and said with a sneer, too late fall back baby (laughs) and i thought that was funny but also interesting because as we know like some of these you know dribbling and jump shots and layups and slam dunks are all just innovations you know they're all just individual there's there's a lot of coaches a lot of scouts that that tend to judge form like like if, if you have an irregular style like i remember hal burton yeah that was his big knock right the, the reason he fell to us is people didn't like the way his shot looked yes even yeah. though it went in even I though he was an analytical like i think that's jason williams thing too i i think jason williams got more disciplined over the course of his career but yeah i mean that was his superpower was that crazy spicy passing mm-hmm. um and i just yeah if you can foster it within a system it becomes a strength right yeah i mean theoretically it, it, it just we we shouldn't look like this is a whole money ball thing but you shouldn't this talent just because it looks weird yeah totally i mean tyrese is such a perfect example of that i wonder if he's if he's the mvp of the i i, I could not care less to be honest i was so annoyed with like the entire um, with the entire thing, because it was like I love Tyrese. Don't get me wrong, but it just was like there's zero kings there. Yeah, and that they're just like there. Tyrese is like the host, you know, guy because it's in his city, so he's in like every single event, 
And then plus they were just like feeding him like mercilessly, like what a scam, dude. And then at the halftime show, she like had the beam in it. Like it wasn't the real beam, but it was like a, a facsimile of the beam on our stage. It's like, seriously, this is what we're doing. Anyways. The whole, the whole All-Star weekend was just... It's baloney. It's yeah, baloney. yeah, like like you mentioned the Pacers getting, you know, gassed up. The They had the skills challenge. The Pacers had a whole team, so... Yeah, yeah. I, I It's fine. I like the gimmicky stuff, though. I like the the rookie sophomore game because they had it like in, as like a mini tournament. What do you, you think of the, the court? The, the yeah. yeah, I think it's so cool to be able to see stuff like that. I liked it. It was a little seizure-inducing, like mildly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it looked bad on the, the three-point. Yes, yeah. yeah. The green, I, if they stick to natural lighting and keep the, the court lit. Yeah. It, it's I, cool. But... The celebrity game, they do all that weird, the weird like four-point line and stuff too, which I actually like because I think it would be really unwatchable without some kind of gimmicks yeah um, but anyways yeah they have to do something about the all-star game it's ridiculous it's not watchable in my opinion oh well, okay. they're not there to make it a good game so yeah they have the they have the the thing at the end right the where you have to score to set number of points at at the end i think they took that out now did they do that anymore but i i could be wrong because i didn't i I don't know if it's over. Last year, and they did that. Yeah. Let's see. The Lillard awarded the Kobe Bryant. So he was the MVP. Anyways. I don't know if they did the Elam ending or not. I think they need to change it. I think they should make the All-Star game like the other, like the the software game was, is make it like more All-Stars. Yeah. And then have like a sniper team, you know, like a G League team or something that could potentially like challenge somebody and then have four teams fight it out. But whatever. Um, No biggie either way. They can always go back to different formats. I remember the U.S. versus World format yeah uh, work for all-star ah who knows east or west yeah. is traditional though right like maybe yeah. they want east one west like east one east two west one west two I, I mean if they just change it every year i think that's the key like because people got sick of world's world uh home or whatever it is too i think yeah. i mean can you imagine like Jokic, luca who would be on the world team? That's crazy. Giannis. Uh, but I guess you'd still have Dame and Tyrese. and Yeah, yeah. So anyways. Okay, so following both coaches' advice, in 1966, Scott became the first black man to receive an athletic scholarship at USNC and play for legendary coach Dean Smith. So that was the, um, the student that John McClendon found for Dean Smith basically when Dean Smith was trying to integrate his program at UNC um McClendon recruited Scott to be his first black um team member and who got in on scholarship too and then the Olympic stuff he was like so involved in the Olympic stuff and 
when I went back to do to write my notes and like reread it, I I didn't remember, but at the very beginning, he was actually with Naismith yeah. at the Olympics where the first basketball game was ever played. So he was mm-hmm. on Naismith's staff for that game, which is pretty incredible. Um, and then continued to be so involved in it, you know, for years and years and years. Yeah. Um, and then McClendon also coached the U.S. team in 1967 under six feet championships. I thought that was cool. Under six feet. Uh, McKinnon became the first black coach to be hired predominantly white um, at Cleveland State, which he tried to build the program up, but it sounds like it was complicated. And then this was the game you were talking about. I teach fast break basketball and our team scored just 24 points. It was unbelievable. Yeah. The, the the Cleveland State thing, the stadiums are always a disaster. They didn't have any facilities, so they couldn't recruit. Yeah. Them. And they didn't have the the PE major, so they couldn't do the, like, like the students were struggling with courses. They yeah. PE, uh, yeah, so it was kind of a disaster. Yeah, although he, it sounds like he did build the program up, but it sounds like it was very... He, he made it better like he had one yeah. of the better records but like impossible to to work with totally totally um and then okay john brought in our first scholarship players along with bob busby he was instrumental in making physical education a major which academically was a big help to many of these kids um so i didn't i i that was like very beginning of the book heavy and this is my last slide um and it just talks about his, I I forgot to put on here that he started, he was like that, a converse. Um, yeah, he, he was in converse for a little bit. And they had this whole bit about him being in Chicago and, and helping out kids there. And Well, I, I thought that the shoe giveaway stuff was really cool. And that's something that still, they still do. Um, yeah. So I I. yeah they gave away all their like reject shoes for free yeah or he would like you know find basketball camps like when he wasn't working anymore and he was just doing community outreach stuff he would find basketball camps or schools where he would go and just give them shoes like um i thought i thought it was interesting but a little sad that that is because he he went into that right after the the rockets yeah um, so so he he kind of gave up coaching for it yeah like, might have gotten like dischanted with well with and I, pros the rocket stuff you know that was a complex chapter like you know it sounded it sounded like his methods were totally sound but like this kind of idea that you have to work harder than everybody else and be better conditioned than everybody else it doesn't work the same way at that level where you have the best of the best who are used to relying on their talent. Right. I mean, and, it shouldn't be that way though. Like right. everyone should, if you, if you truly believe in winning, you should try to get every edge. And, yeah. and it's just, you know, guys have power. They have the no cut contracts. They basically lied to them about yeah. the no cut contracts, about the, the racial quotas, um, yes. 
So it, it felt like the, the Rockets weren't in good faith, like trying to make I mean, it work. It's also really interesting that they talk about like how the schedule hurt him so much. Is mm-hmm. like their entire schedule was like they were on the road for like the whole first half of it. Yeah, and they were and missing guys as we they like yeah where they like got home and once he was gone they started winning like using his same plays his same system the same yeah. and the same you know so it, it sounded like he got cheated a little yeah. out yeah. of out of that kind of opportunity but but still still huge to get a like the first black coach in that yeah. kind of caliber of of team yeah and i mean in a league that really was using a lot of his um functionality right? like, yeah. you know they played fast break ball use the three-point line all that stuff like was stuff that he innovated um so i'm so curious like what if basketball coaches now know who he was you know if they if they've been exposed to his philosophy you know i'm well, sure, I'm sure it, it comes up at some point in time yeah but but it definitely you know it's it's kind of just basketball history at this point yes uh so and then he taught a course the course syllabus states this course examines the history of the african-american athlete in the united states of america within the context of the social and political circumstances and conditions that existed during the various time periods of his life and achievements we will study african-american athletes in various sports while observing social and political phenomenon that affected their role and development. The course covered 11 different sports and had a research list of 100 books from which the students would choose 10 to investigate on his or her own. So that, was, that sounds really cool. It said that his book was not on the syllabus. So, yeah. um, but just again, that he, this was his goal the whole time was to, to further integrate society using this sport that was fun and that he played in a really fun way i I think it's 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 always interesting to to run across courses where the the professor was a huge innovator in in whatever they're teaching yeah i did a i I took a self-driving robotics course oh wow where where the the professor was a part of the google self-driving car team oh wow and and I was like, like and he was like super foundational in in regards to like how self driving cars work. And I was like, that's so cool. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's so cool. So this is his poem that he wrote, the Ode to the Vanquish. I'm not going to read it, but yeah. I just thought it was interesting that he wrote a poem about the loser, right? About the mm-hmm. person who doesn't win the game. Um, I see. If I can, I had like a couple just like things I didn't want to forget to say, but I'm not sure if I'll be able to find them. Oh yeah, Luscious Luke Jackson, Lucius. I, I, my ears picked up because he was in the book. He was one of the students that um, John McClendon had, and he died on one of the mornings that I was reading the book. I saw. I, I remember there was in one of the Kings in the Kings Cavs game. Yeah, honoring John McClendon during halftime. Oh, neat! And I was like, wait, <laughs> I was yeah. like, wait, that's so cool. I, I guess they're like hanging their jersey somewhere on the in the arena or something oh, like that. Oh, that's so cool. 
Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, Lucius Jackson, I obviously, I in the book, I was like, oh, Luscious Jackson. Oh, because of the band. <laughs> but anyways, he, this is his obituary. Um, and this is a copy of his book right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a bunch of really cool, um, like, uh, Museum of Durham history has like a whole, you know, display on him and stuff. So one of them I mentioned, which was that he was Native American. I thought the stuff about, there was a chapter where it talks about how civil rights advocacy changed so much. And, and I think it said that too, but I mean, I think he went out of style, you know? Yeah. Like he, so I think that's a part of the reason why the story isn't more, I mean, I'm so glad that people are digging it back up and that it's on broadcasts and, um, I, I think I think I I really think the story isn't well known just because the the things that so much of it is background. Yeah. Because he never got the proper opportunities. True. Um, it's like it even people always remember the Dean Smiths and uh, you know all the the blue chip schools. And, that basically just stole shit from him. Yeah. I mean, and <laughs> it, it, it's like. And the the pro ball is always obviously a huge part of basketball history uh, that people pay attention to, but yeah. like, but there's more to basketball than just that, and and I think his story got like passed away because uh, he never. I mean, he was a, a groundbreaking, but he he never he didn't influence the the part of the game people pay attention to. Well, and it's like on in a limited regional stage. Yeah. Like I bet in Durham and North Carolina and Cleveland. Yeah. Like more people definitely know who he is. Yeah. Uh, I and that must be it. That's all I there, have. I have one one more thing. Yeah. Uh, the book mentioned how how he was uh in the Hall of Fame as a contributor and um, yeah and they talked about there was this bit about how someone mentioned him as a coach and he got mad and told him like on the medallion not to do that um because that was a mark of his character it was like right at the end uh but he did get voted in as a coach uh in 2016 yes so yeah so I- i'm glad that like it, it, it the whole like the NCA was petty because he was promoting the NAIA. That's so yes. Stupid. Like, yeah. like, it's crazy. If that was the reason he didn't get into the Hall of Fame, that's like as a coach initially when he was alive. That's a, it's, it's a bit it's of a tragedy. A personal drama. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because he was, yeah. Great book. Mm-hmm. Very, very fun read. Um, I don't. Do you have anything else you're interested in reading? It's not a basketball book. It's more a general sports book. Uh-huh. I, I want to read Field of Schemes. Field of Schemes. It's about it's about stadiums. Uh, how, oh. how owners try to cheat uh, cities out of, of money for stadiums. Ooh. That sounds spicy. Field he has a website but he has a book and i've been meaning to read this book for a while 
but we've been doing basketball books only so i was like not sure if i should bring it up but i think we should really go through it oh it doesn't have an audiobook are you cool with that i'm cool with it i've been meaning to read this for a while field of schemes oh this looks fascinating how the great stadium swindles turns public money into private profit Ooh. all right cool it's pretty topical for me yeah Uh, i've been following the a's um, and that whole that whole thing oh. has been, and obviously it was relevant to us during during the the move. Yeah, the Kings. So yeah, I've been I've been following all the the teams trying to snake out money, and, yeah. and I've been meaning to read through this. 